Old Testament minor prophets. There are 12 of them, and uh, we have, I think, three left uh, after today. So this is, uh, would be the eighth one, is that correct? I think we have three more after today. And the prophet that we're looking at is Habakkuk, and we've actually been looking at them somewhat in chronological order, although some of the minor prophets, it's hard to place them on a chronology. But this morning we're looking at Habakkuk, and he is unique among the minor prophets, both amongst the major and the minor prophets. And, and he is unique in this way. He is unique because his letter, his message, is not a confrontation to the people. It's not directed, actually, to the people. What his letter is, what his book is, is a conversation between him and God. And uh, the last chapter is really something that he penned, I believe, for all of us. But this is really not a message to the people. This is really this conversation. And it's a brazen one, if I might add, because Habakkuk is really kind of confronting God. He asks God a question, you know, and, and, and then God answers. And then he asks a follow-up question, and God gives a follow-up answer. Very little is known about Habakkuk, just like a lot of the minor prophets. We, we know very little about him. He was evidently a contemporary of Jeremiah, the major prophet, Jeremiah, who prophesied into the exile, and a contemporary of Zephaniah. If you were here last week, you remember that Zephaniah was the one who didn't name the country, but basically said to Israel, your time is up. And God is going to do to you what he did to the northern kingdom, except he's not going to absolutely destroy you. He's going to exile you for seven the, the, the people that are going to come against them because Zephaniah's point is that God is doing this, and so he doesn't name them. Now, in this case, Habakkuk, he's talking to God. The, the country gets named several times. In fact, it's really the heart of these questions that Habakkuk has to God. We know nothing about him personally. However, his, his book, the book of Habakkuk, is quoted four times in the New Testament. And three of those times, God is going to use Habakkuk, and the same reference in Habakkuk is going to be quoted at three different times, three different places in the New Testament, and we'll see that through our study. This is probably the easiest Old Testament book to follow to follow along with. In fact, it may be the easiest book in the entire Bible to follow along. It's short, and its outline is very simple. Habakkuk asks a question, God answers. Habakkuk follows up, God answers again. And then in chapter 3, there is this culminating poetic psalm that is really a prayer that Habakkuk prays, and it is meant to be sung. But we'll talk about that more in just a little bit. So let's look at the book. The first question that Habakkuk asks is this, God... I've been looking at the injustice in Israel for a long time, and I'm wondering, will you ever deal with the injustice of these people? Will you ever deal with these wayward, rebellious people that are yours? In chapter 1, verse 2, he writes, and I read it directly, How long, Lord, must I call for help? And you do not listen or cry out to you about violence, and you do not save. Why do you force me to look at this injustice? Habakkuk is obviously a godly man. Israel is God's nation. He created it. He constituted it. And yet he is allowing them to be extremely unjust. And Habakkuk says, Lord, I'm tired of looking at this ungodly injustice. When are you going to do something about it? 
That's his question. Now we turn to God's answer, verse 5. And, and God says to Habakkuk, you're really not going to believe what I'm going to say to you. All right? And then in chapter 1, verse 5 through 11, God tells Habakkuk, I'm about to use the Babylonians to punish Israel. Verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. He goes on to say, like a wolf pack at dark, swooping like an eagle, the Babylonians are going to come in and they're absolutely going to destroy Judah or destroy all that's left of Israel. Zephaniah, as I said, left them unnamed. God names them very specifically here. It's the Babylonians that are going to punish Israel. And they are known for their own injustice and their own ruthlessness. So, of course, that prompts Habakkuk's second question, and it would probably be all of our question as well. God, how can you use a people more wicked than us to punish us? That doesn't make sense. How can you use these wicked people to punish Israel? And uh, Habakkuk uh, says, your eyes, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. The implication being, you, you cannot you cannot use them. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? That's verse 13. Why would you stand by and let these ungodly people come down here and do this to your people? And then Habakkuk, again, we're in chapter 1 still, Habakkuk paints this picture of the Babylonians. And he says they're like fishermen, and Israel's like the sea. In fact, all the nations are like the sea. And the Babylonians are like fishermen, Lord. And they come down and they take this huge haul of fish in, i.e. the Israelites or whatever people group it might be that the Babylonians are conquering. He says, and then when they're finished, they give praise to their nets. Why in the world would you let them conquer anybody when they have no regard for you whatsoever. And when we get to chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, God, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to wait till you answer my question. Pretty brazen, isn't it? But again, isn't that kind of our question? How in the world can God use people more ungodly than somebody who maybe needs to be dealt with, but he's going to use ungodlier people to deal with them? That doesn't make sense to Habakkuk. And here God, here's God's answer, his second answer to Habakkuk. And he says, write it down, let everyone know it will happen, maybe not right away, but it's coming. I will judge, destroy, and just, I will judge and destroy the Babylonians as well, at, as well for their wickedness. I didn't read that very well. Basically, God's answer is, I am going to judge not just Israel, but I will judge the Babylonians for their ungodliness. And then God enumerates a number of things that he has against Babylon. He says, if you're following along in chapter 2, I'm not going to really read the text, but he's, he says they're proud, he says they're arrogant, he says they shed innocent blood, they are greedy, they are unjust and they shame other people. That's what he has against Babylon. And then God says about the Babylonians, in verse 6, he says, they will be taunted, and they will be ridiculed, and they will be scorned. In verse 7, he says, Babylon will be the prey of others. In verse 8, he says, Babylon itself will be plundered. In verse 10, he says, Babylonians will be killed. In verse 16, he says, they will be shamed, their nakedness exposed. In verse 17, God says, violence will be done to them. And then God mocks the Babylonians, actually. He mocks them and he says, Your wooden and stone idols, what value will they be to you then? You will say, Come to life, guide us, but there is no breath in them. And so basically, God, you know, he's writing 
through, he's answering Habakkuk's question, and he's saying, in, in that day, when I judge the Babylonians, they're going to look to their wooden and stone idols, and they're going to say, save us and guide us, and God's going to say, where's your help from them now? They don't have any breath in them. And when all this happens, in verse 14, God tells Habakkuk, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth, or covers the sea, excuse me. And then in verse 20, he says, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. Now, just to comment on those two verses real quickly, the translation there is the word earth in verse 14 and verse 20, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And in verse 20, it says, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth be silent before him. That word translated earth there can easily, just as, just as correctly, and I believe more so in this case, be translated as land. I really think that God is saying, in verse 20 especially, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the land be silent before him. And I think he's talking about Israel. I think he's talking about his nation. Let my people in my land be silent before me. And even in verse 14, the land will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the earth. I think he's saying, in my land, in my land, in my, in my nation, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the land that is mine. Now, when he finishes this, uh, he's going to, that, that's actually the end of chapters 1 and 2, and that's really all there is to that. But I want to pause here for just a moment, and I want us to note two things that I believe God wants Israel to understand, two things that I believe he wants you and me to understand today. They are very relevant to us. Here's the first one. God wants them to know, God wants us to know, that he will use other people and he will use circumstances in the lives of his people to bring about his discipline. I want to say it again. I'm going to try to say it in a different way. But God will use people and circumstances. And let me just add this. God can use wicked, evil people in the lives of his people in order to bring about the discipline of his people. Now, God's people in our context in, in Habakkuk refers to the nation Israel. But I think it can also refer to specifically us as God's true Israel, the remnant, those who trust in the Lord. The point is that God can use people to discipline the nation of Israel, ungodly people, but he can also use people to discipline us, to discipline, and, and not just people, but circumstances in our life. And sometimes the people that he uses are wicked people. The people that he uses have no regard for him and, and actually are very evil, but God can use and will use those people to bring about discipline in the lives of, of, of God's people. In this case, in the context, the nation of Israel, but for us, as the people of God, God can use others in our lives in this way. Now, two weeks ago, on Tuesday morning, when we were having breakfast, our men's breakfast, we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're, we're reading that passage where it talks about the discipline of the Lord. And, and we you know, together, us men around the table, we determined that the discipline of the Lord can be twofold. And I believe this is true even to what we're talking about this morning. The discipline of the Lord can be punitive, where our behavior is wrong. We have wrong thoughts, wrong actions, and God uses discipline in our life to correct us, to transform us, to change us from the path that we're on, to get us off of that path and to get us on to the right path. So God uses discipline in the same way that you might use corrective discipline with your children to guide their behavior and to guide their thinking. So you might use timeouts, you might use spankings, you might use the loss of, 
of uh, their allowance or whatever it is, depending on the age of the child. But, but you use discipline to correct wrong behavior in the lives of your children. And I think what, what, what Habakkuk, what God wants us to see from Habakkuk is that God disciplines his people and he can use others to bring about that corrective change in our life. But at that men's breakfast, we also said this, but the discipline of God is not always punitive to try to correct wrong behavior. God's discipline at times is to strengthen us, much like the Marines strengthen their rangers, and I know nothing about this personally other than what I've read, but the Marines strengthen their rangers and the Navy strengthens their seals by putting them through tremendous discipline. It's not punitive. They're not trying to correct bad behavior. They're trying to strengthen those soldiers so that later on when they have to go through some really tough stuff, they're prepared for it because they've they've been fortified by the experiences that the Corps put them through or the Navy puts them through, right? So I want you to understand that God's discipline isn't just to correct me when I'm on the wrong path. Yes, it is that. And yes, he can use people to do that. And he can use very wicked people to change my direction. But God can also use wicked people in my life to strengthen me. He can, he can use bad circumstances in my life to strengthen me because God in his omniscience knows everything down the path. And so at the age of 25, he puts me through some really difficult things so that he knows when I'm at the age of 45 or 55 or maybe even older, he knows I'm going to have to go through some really tough stuff. And so he's equipping me way back here to be able to deal with what's coming in the future. Everybody follow me? So I really think the lesson that God wants us to understand from Habakkuk is that in in this discipline that God uses in our life, he can use people, wicked people, evil people, terrible, tough situations and circumstances in our life to bring about discipline, either corrective behavior or strengthening. Now, like God told Habakkuk, you may not like that. I don't know about you, I, I still find that kind of hard, right? Why, why do I have to go through suffering? Why do I have to go through tough stuff down here? I mean, especially when I cannot see, I cannot see years ahead, right? But, but that's what God said, and, and Habakkuk found it hard to believe. You know, we do too, but that's, I believe that's the lesson of Habakkuk. Now, there's one thing I do want you to understand before I move on, and it's this, that Habakkuk understood this from the beginning, that God is not creating the Babylonians evil for his purposes, that's one thing, you know, I, I don't want you to misunderstand. God is not making the Babylonians wicked men and women so that somehow or another he can use them down the road. No, he's not causing them or decreeing them to be as they are. God's just using their wickedness, their personality, and their persons. He's just using them for his own ends. In Habakkuk 1.13, Habakkuk writes this, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Now notice this, Habakkuk is not saying God is creating these Babylonians evil. He's basically saying he's tolerating these evil people and he's being silent when they do what they do. Beloved, God is not the cause of evil. He never has been. He never will be. He doesn't decree evil, but he is not adverse to using evil, allowing evil to bring about the results in our life that he desires. Let me move on to the second thing that I want you to to learn, I want us to learn from Habakkuk, and is this. 
God also wants us as people, and Israel in that case, them to know, his nation, and us today, those who follow the Lord Jesus, he wants us to know that no sin, no evil will ever go unpunished or undealt with by God, okay? In this case, God tells Habakkuk, yeah, you know, I'm going to use Babylon, and they're going to bring about judgment on you guys and discipline on you guys, but be not dismayed. I am going to deal with them. I am going to address their evil, and indeed, their nation will be destroyed by the nation of Persia. Now, I think that God is trying to communicate something much much more far-reaching than just that, hey, I'm going to deal with Babylon. I think he's trying to say, hey, listen, I am always going to judge sin righteously. I'm always going to deal justly in the end and righteously with all men. And that includes us, okay? The God who is the God, who's the creator God of all things, he's also the judge of all the earth, the Bible says. And so he is going to judge all things. Now, we quoted this psalm many times because it's just a great word for us. But in Psalm 73, the psalmist is despairing because he sees what so often we see. The wicked are flourishing and the righteous are suffering. And he makes the statement, I almost threw the towel in. I almost gave up because it just didn't make sense. Why should I worry about righteousness following God when the, when the unjust or the ungodly, I mean, they're just, they're living it up and we're not. Verse 18 of Psalm 73, surely, he says, until I perceive their end. And this is what he says, surely you have set them in a slippery, slippery, slippery place. You cast them down to destruction. Now they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And here's what the psalmist says he understood. He understood that in the end, the wicked will be destroyed and the righteous will live. And so he said, you know what, when I was almost about to throw in the towel, I recognized, God, that this is not the end, that this is not the end of God's judgment. This life is not the end. God sometimes meets out um, judgment in this life. Sometimes he deals righteously or he deals with injustice now. But if he doesn't deal with it now, you need to understand he will deal with Injustice, injustice. He is judge of all the earth. And I think that's the lesson that, that God wanted to show Habakkuk and, and to show us. We all know wicked people. We all know people who are just absolutely uh, so selfish that they care not about anyone else and they go through life on a bed of roses. When, when godly men and women walk the road of jagged stones, right? And, and so life isn't fair. We'd say life isn't just, but, but the point is that God is just. And at the very end, God is going to judge all nations, and God is going to judge all men. And at the end, God is going to judge all things correctly. So there are my two points. Go back and put the, the last one up there for me, Chris, so I can read it, would you please? Go back one slide. All right. Um, God uses other people and circumstances in our lives in the lives of his people, to bring about discipline. And then the second thing that I think that we want to learn from Habakkuk from these first two chapters is, but God says to his people, he wants us to know that no sin, no evil will ever go unpunished or undealt with in righteousness by him. And before I move to chapter 3, which is the climax of the book, let's back up into chapter 2, verse 4, because that's the verse that's quoted three different times in your New Testament. It's verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, talking about Babylon, but the righteous, or the just, your, your, your version may say just or righteous, will live by his faith. 
Now, Paul quotes this in Romans 1.7. He quotes it also in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 11. The author of Hebrews quotes it in chapter 10, verse 38. And both of these authors, in these three cases, are seeking to say the same thing. And that is that righteousness from God, before God, is righteousness that comes because we trust in him, because we put our faith in him. It doesn't come because we measure some sort of success in keeping the 600 and, how many was it? 600 and, thank you all, 613, that wasn't a test, I didn't remember, 613 laws, right? It's not because we, we ma- manage to live up to a, a certain level of the 613 laws. It's because we trust in the lawgiver. It's because we trust in the one who is God over all. And, and the righteous, Habakkuk says, shall live by faith. And, and again, these authors quote this. They make a real big point to quote this verse three times to say that it's not our keeping of the law, but it is our trust, our faith in God that makes us righteous. Now let's look for just a moment, if you want to in your Bible, I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 3. I'm only going to look at one passage where the verse is used, but it's sort of the same in all three passages. Galatians 3, 5, Paul is writing to this church and he says, does God who supplies the spirit to you work and work miracles among you. Does he do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those by faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by their keeping of the law, preached the good news beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then... Those who are of faith are blessed uh, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if your goal is to be righteous by keeping the law, you've got to keep it all and never fail. He says it's really a curse, not a blessing. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous, and here's where he quotes Habakkuk, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So the righteous person becomes righteous because he puts his trust in God. Now this was the truth, listen everyone, this was the truth that rocked Martin Luther's world. I mean, he's a Catholic monk, he's trying to find satisfaction or peace with God, and he discovers this, that his relationship with God is not based on how well he keeps all of those commands, he discovers that his relationship with God is based on his faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for the one who comes to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Martin Luther understood that, so he goes to his, to his church, and he says, we've got to reform, we're wrong. And of course, they weren't willing to reform, and the Protestant Reformation came out of that, okay? But here's something that sometimes escapes us, and, and I didn't know this, I didn't know this until my study this week, and that is that the word translated from Habakkuk, translated faith, can also be translated faithfulness. Let that sink in for just a moment. You know, the word can be translated not just faith as an objective, something that I trust in, but it can be translated as faithfulness. Now, it's really obvious if you read the New Testament writers. Y'all tracking with me? Am I losing you? It's really obvious that the New Testament writers make a, a 
great big point that the word should not be translated faithfulness, that is, keeping, you know, following after God, but that it should be the object of our, of our, belief, our faith, our, our faith as, an, as, a, as a thing in which we trust in God. They make a huge point to that. But I want to make this statement, and maybe I'm wrong in even doing so, but, you know, I, I believe that though the word is translated faith by our New Testament writers, I mean, I think there's a hint in there that faith and faithfulness go, go hand in glove. And the reason I would say that is because in the book of James, you know, Martin Luther, who discovered that salvation is, relation with God is by faith and faith alone, he wanted to cook, cut, cut the book of James out of his Bible because he just didn't like it. But in James chapter 2, James makes a statement, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And it's almost like, wow, those words are contradictory to faith alone, right? Well, James goes on to basically use Abraham, and he says, you know, Abraham's faith led him to offer his son Isaac in faithfulness. Rahab's faith led her to hide the spies at the cost of her life. And James' point is that faith is always working with faithfulness. So, so beloved, I, I really, I really want to challenge us. With the right, our righteousness comes by faith, but our righteousness always leads us to faithfulness in God. Verse 22 of, of James chapter 2. You see that faith working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Men in every age, in every day, have every tribe, they've all been made right with God by one thing, and that is by their faith. Don't ever forget that. If there's anything I, take, anything I say this morning that you need to take away, it's that. We're all made righteous by faith. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in our present day, in the day when Jesus lived, we're, we're, the, the death of Jesus is applied to every man's life by faith and by faith alone. But faith always leads us to faithfulness. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, listen to what Paul says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and... Um, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, the video, I mean, I don't know how to respond to the video that I showed. I mean, part of me wants to clap. You know, part of me is just, I'm, I'm so taken by what the brother says in that video. Jesus came to give us the heart by which we can love God and love others. All right, well, let me finish the book with the, the third chapter of Habakkuk. And, and this is really the, the, the culmination of the book. This is the pinnacle of the book. And so when we get to chapter 3, here's what chapter 3 is. It is a prayer and it is a song. All right, it's a prayer and it's a song that Habakkuk meant for all of us to use in worship. So verse 1 says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionath. I have no idea if that's anywhere close to being right. But what, what that meant was a musical song that was accompanied with a spirit of excitement and, and triumph and joy. Okay, so... That should be like, uh, you know the song we sing, sing joy, sing joy, you know, that just kind of revs you up, filled with joy. 
That's, that's what this kind of song was meant to do in the hearts of the people that would sing it, all right? And this song is a prayer, and the fact that it was a prayer meant to be a song is confirmed by two things. Number one, the last line of Habakkuk 3 says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And throughout, throughout the third chapter, we have the word selah in verse 3, verse 9, and verse 11. You see that in your Bibles? Maybe you don't know what that word means. I mean, I've always known it was a musical thing, but I couldn't have told you what it was. And, and there, maybe the reason for that is no one knows for sure. But scholarship says that it was one of two things. The, the, the word salah in the Psalms was meant to be a place for singers to breathe. And if you've ever been a singer, you know, you know sometimes you have to take a breath. And, and it was trying to tell everybody, breathe here. Or it might have been, they say, they say it might have been a place where drums would take off and would empower the song with drums. All right? So those are the two options that scholarship tell us, tells us that the word silah meant. So I'm going to say it means both. Hey, singers sing and drummers take over, all right, and just make this a song of excitement and joy. Now, the reason that, uh, that this is so important is because Habakkuk means for all of us to sing this song. He means for all of us to pray this prayer. It's not just, it wasn't just for himself. It was for all of Israel to sing this prayer. Remember, they're, they're, they're on the front side of the exile. Babylon hasn't come. Babylon hasn't come, but they are coming. So this is a song that he teaches them to sing in light of that. Now, now we're, we're, we're way past Babylon. We're looking back on Babylon. But I'm telling you, there's parts of this song we ought to sing all the time. All right? So let's look at the song. In verse 2, his opening statement goes like this. And this is part of the song. And the prayer, Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now, here's what Habakkuk says in my words. He's saying, I've heard, I understand, it makes me afraid. Lord, don't forget us. Have mercy, restore us. And then in the next 12 verses, verses 3 through verse 15, in this song, in chapter 3, Habakkuk rehearses in the song, in the prayer, what God has done for Israel to this point. And he seems to point to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, and all that God did bringing them into the promised land. So imagine you're, uh, you're Jewish. Imagine you're part of the nation of Israel. And so you're singing the song, and it's like, it's like remembering all the things that God has done. And you're kind of excited about it, recollecting God's defeat of your enemies. And so Habakkuk prays, and Habakkuk sings in verse 13, You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. <laughs> uh, selah, you know. <laughs> so singers breathe, and get ready to sing the next part. And drummers drum, right? Get ready to make this an exciting next step, step right? But here's what he says, and that he says, Lord, you, you saved us, and you, you notice the part, it's pretty graphic, isn't it? You laid open from thigh to neck the evil. Basically, he's saying you took a sword and you sliced the evil open, the evil and he doesn't, he says the house of evil is what he calls it, but you, you laid this, the house of evil wide open from neck to thigh. And I think why Habakkuk is doing that is because he's rehearsing for the, the Jews to encourage their hearts as a reminder that God has established them, that God loves them, and, and that God has put them in the promised land, and he's promised not to forget them. But in verse 16, the, the song or the prayer sort of changes. In verse 16, 
Habakkuk writes, I heard and my inward parts trembled at the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. So here's how the song is going, right? He says, I hear, I heard it, I get it. And then he rehearses all that God's done. And then this verse, but now, and let me put it in my own words. Here's, here's, here's my own words for Habakkuk, all right? I thought I was going to throw up. My lip quivered. My whole body shook. I felt the life go out of me. I felt dead on the inside because now I know all I can do is wait for Babylon to invade us and destroy us. That's kind of how the song goes. Lord, you know, I'm looking to you. This is what you've done. But now I, I get it. On the inside, I'm trembling because now all I know, all I can do is I wait for these people to arise and invade us. And from this point, Habakkuk finishes his prayer song with, I think, one of the greatest, highest, sweetest, fullest affirmations of faith that we find in our Bible, okay? Remember the context. God, your greatness has brought us here. Your sovereignty has kept us here. And, and in your sovereignty now, you're going to bring this group against us, and a hard time is coming against us. I know, I fear. And then he makes this statement in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom... And there be no grapes on the vine. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet. And he makes me walk on my high places. Habakkuk is making a statement that is meant to be extreme. And here's what he's saying. If everything that sustains my life... Listen, listen, please, don't let this distract us. This is the most important part of the book. If everything that sustains my life is gone, if everything is removed, all the food sources are washed away, no more figs, no more grapes, no more olive oil, no more garden foods, no more meats. Worst case scenario, the hurricane washes it away, the wildfires burn it up, the floods wash it away, enemies destroy it. If everything that sustains my life goes away, Habakkuk says, I'm going to do three things. Look at it with me. He says, yet, yet, number one, yet will I triumph through the Lord, through God. Now, you know, in your Bibles, mine in the New American Standard said exalt. Your, your Bible may have, I have three things. Your Bible may have two of these because it kind of combines the first and second. But I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. And the word that's translated exalt there can mean triumph. It can mean triumph. It has a range of meaning to mean triumph. Now, here's what I want you to understand. I think Habakkuk is saying, yet will I triumph through God. And I think he's saying that if I lose everything in my life, everything is taken away, yet I'm going to triumph through God because I got, a, I got a long-term view of this. I'm looking towards the end. I'm looking to what God's going to do. And God is, I'm going to win in the end. I'm with the Lord. In the end, God will judge right, righteously, and I will triumph through him. And then he goes on, he says, yet will I rejoice in the God who saves me. And so in the middle of, though you lose everything, 
Habakkuk saying, look, I'm going to triumph through God. If I lose everything, yet I'm going to rejoice in God who strengthens. Uh, I'm going to rejoice in God who saves me. His focus is on the end, that God is going to save him no matter what he goes through in life. And because of that, he says, you know, I can be going through the greatest suffering and still have joy in my life. I can choose it. And then the last thing he says, yet I will trust in the God who strengthens me. I mean, uh, Habakkuk has this solidifying faith. He says, God is going to give me strength. God is my strength, my strength through all of that's going to come. God's going to be my strength. So Habakkuk sings and he prays and he says, God, though my world crashes around me, and it's going to, his whole world's going to crash around him in just a few years, I will triumph in the end, I will rejoice in the midst of it, and you will give me the strength I need to walk through it. Now, how did this exchange between God and Habakkuk lead him to this great affirmation? Again, it goes back to the two lessons I, I commented on earlier. One, Habakkuk understood God is sovereign over all. And if God wants to use wicked people to bring about his purposes, I don't get it. But hey, he has a right to do that because he's Lord. You know, I like to rehearse uh, Charles Spurgeon's quote quite often to us, and this is a good time to do it again. God is too wise to make a mistake. God is too good to ever be unkind. And if you don't understand why all the suffering is going on in your life, if you, this is what he said, if you can't trace his hand, you don't know why you're going through what you're going through, trust his heart. Trust him that he loves you, that he hasn't forgotten you. And, and, and do, do exactly what Habakkuk is telling us to do. All right? Now, the second thing that he understood was God is sovereign over it all, but he also stood, understood God's justice. Trust in the Lord. He's going to make it right. The Apostle Paul once said, the momentary sufferings of this life cannot be compared to the weight of glory that God has for me and you in the future. I don't care what you're going through, and I know some of you suffer so much. I really do know that. But the momentary sufferings of your life today cannot be compared to the eternal weight of glory that is coming in the future. I don't know why you suffer. I don't know why we suffer. And I don't know why some of us suffer so much more than others. Let me be quick to say, I don't think that all suffering comes as a punitive way of correcting us. You know, I'd have to say that God allows suffering in all of our lives to strengthen us at some point down the road. But I don't know why you suffer. But some of you suffer. And some of you may, may you know, I've seen people suffer and they, they throw in the towel. They say, you know, this, this thing about following God, why, why am I suffering? Why is this going? You know, I just caught Virginia's eye. Why does Virginia have to go through Parkinson's, you know? Why, why do we have to go through? I look out and I, and I know how many of you are suffering. Why are you going through that? I don't know. I don't know. But whatever you're suffering, it cannot be compared to the weight of glory that God has prepared in a redeemed and sinless world. No more broken relationships. No more control freaks, no more selfish people, no more greedy people, no more lying people. I'm going to be there, <laughs> I promise, but, but God's going God's to change. Hey, I'm just being honest. You are all those things too, you know? I'm just as broken as all of us here. But the neat thing about it is that God's going to redeem all that. And you know what? In the redeemed world, the momentary light afflictions... And I'm saying that, and some of you are saying, there's nothing momentary and there's nothing light about my affliction, and I get it. But the heavy afflictions that you go through, they cannot be compared to the weight of glory that God has prepared. 
So Habakkuk teaches us to sing and to pray. If everything that sustains my life and brings me joy is taken away, yet will I triumph through the Lord Jesus. Yet will I choose joy in the midst of grievous loss. Yet he will make me strong to endure whatever lies ahead. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. I'd like to ask you to bow your head while they're coming up. And here's what I'd like you to do for just a moment. Um, is just in your heart, just, I don't know, talk to God about this talk. Talk to God about what Habakkuk says. And maybe, maybe you're going through a lot of suffering and, and you're just like not filled with joy and you are not living triumphantly over it. You're not allowing God to strengthen you through it. And you are complaining and you are pouting and, and you are just not allowing God to work in your life. I, this, is, this is an opportunity for us to respond to the message of Habakkuk for us because I think it's point, timeless. I think his, his, his lesson is for us. It was for them, maybe in a way more so than for us. That, that song they sang doesn't really apply to us except till that last part. That God removes everything that sustains me and everything that gives me joy. Yet I'll triumph through him. I'll rejoice in him. He's my savior, and he will strengthen me. He's going to give me hind feet to, to climb, climb up high over that suffering. 